0: So I mentioned a moment ago that we are doing a series on marriage and relationships starting today. <laughs> Guys, could you leave room for the Holy Spirit, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Holy Spirit is actually actually eight inches Well <laughs> um, At least that's what they told me at uh, Roberts Wesleyan College. So... Um, <laughs> um, so we're at the beginning of each of these weeks. It is my hope to have uh, a, a moment with uh, one of the couples from Artisan, where they can share a story about their own relationship—sort uh, of an Artisan version of when Harry met Sally. Um, not the plot of the movie, but the um, you know the little interviews on the couch. Um, so this is Jonathan and Chrissy Walsh. So join me in welcoming them. Thank you, guys. And uh, they're going to tell a story.
1: So we're going to tell a little bit of story about how we met and kind of our process through engagement. Don't worry, it won't be too long. Many of you guys have heard it, or some of you guys have. Um, you might have heard the right or wrong version, depending on who you got it from. Uh, so we'll try to tell you kind of what happened, and uh, I guess she will start.
2: Okay, so the first time we met actually was at a Campus Crusade meeting. Um, we went to school together, and I uh, came at the very end of the year because I was, in freshman year, I was looking all year for a campus fellowship, and so I came at the end of the year to a really small fellowship that was filled with a lot of sarcastic introverts, and they, of course, didn't speak to me because they're introverts, and, um, but one did, and this is the one that did, and that actually <laughs> stood out to me that he actually came and, like, said hello, so it was just sort of the beginning of our friendship.
1: So then, uh, that was end of freshman year. Uh, I got one letter from her over the summer, and I didn't know what to make of that.
2: I was just being friendly. I wasn't actually trying to go them. We so, had watched Wallace and Gromit together at the end of our freshman year. We yes. were friends, and it was just like, oh, this is a friend who likes the things I
1: like. I wasn't. Kidding. I got a handwritten letter from a girl. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, uh, so then uh, we uh, kind of, uh, it was uh, a lot of the relationship in early college is just over instant messenger, which we were wondering, we had the conversation if it's now called AIM. We're not sure what the kids are calling it these days. We call it instant messenger. And so where that's where a lot of our relationship developed. And this is where the, the description of the story separates about what I interpreted the relationship to be, which, and then what she did and we were hanging out. My, my version is that we were friends that liked hanging out and talked on instant messenger. And, uh, Some of us thought that maybe the relationship was a little bit more than that. and then.
2: Well, some of us called it kind of, sort of, kind of dating, which is kind of dating. So we were (laughs) kind of, sort
1: of. So that happened through uh, my sophomore year. In the summer, I was at, I just kind of was thinking and also maybe a little freaking out a little bit about what the relationship, if it was a relationship, could become. And so I called her. Very classy, like, and uh, over the phone said maybe uh, we shouldn't hang out as much as we are, and I'd like to just be friends. Le- well, less. Yeah.
2: And he also said. Yeah, well. <laughs> is this is too this below? The floor. He also said I can't imagine marrying you. Oh, I know. But you're, I know. Okay, okay. We're married, all right. So.
1: Clearly. <laughs> So I, I don't remember specifically saying that, but I'm sh- it was out of context, clearly. <laughs> so um, so then, that was going into junior year. Uh, she began, she immediately well, from that time, she hated me for, for the most part. Couldn't stand being, we were I could not sit this close to her. There was one time where I sat next to her and she physically got up and moved. Um, so I, And then she went and studied in New York and stuff for that semester. So once she got back, I spent the next almost year trying to get her to talk to me or be my friend again. So I won that battle. And then <laughs> then we got back into the ambiguity area of, I thought we could just be friends, and then we had a conversation about if
2: that was possible. So, but that happened because over uh, our senior year, over our break, we were on like, um, a campus, like, um, trip somewhere, and I overheard him, and I thought I heard him say that he was interested in another girl, which he didn't, but I think that must have been sort of like a divine intervention thing, because I freaked out and was like, oh, crap, I don't just like this guy as a friend, I like him as more than a friend, so that's when we started having the, more of the defining the relationship talks. Yeah,
1: so then she said, you know, basically, if I can't be friends with you and, like, kind of keep doing this, and I was like, I don't understand why we can't just be friends like best friends which clearly you can't do like so but i thought it was possible
2: yeah he said like you can be like why can't we just be best friends and i was like okay we can be friends actually what i said is because i thought he was still interested in another girl i said well if you want to like you can date somebody else that's okay but if you do we cannot be friends and if you don't we can be friends and he was like oh we can be best friends and i'm thinking in my mind i'm moving to china like in august so i'll be friends for three more months and then i'll never talk to you again
1: she didn't tell me that part. So um, so still we were in the friends, not friends, and I kind of shut that door down of like, you know, I can't have it be more. Until like three weeks later, um, I decided, no, that's retarded. I actually think I should date her. So then I asked her, I was like, you know, would you consider dating me? And she looks at me and says, I need to go on a walk. So she left. And it, and it was 15 minutes later before she came back to tell me uh, she has to think about it more. So, and then it was still that whole week uh, before she ever gave me an answer. And I was, you know, I was just sitting there in the student center just like, I thought i just asked somebody a question, and they just walked away. <laughs> so, um, but eventually she said, yes. Yeah.
2: This was actually, the walk was a really wonderful moment. It was like a savoring 15 minutes of, ah. Uh, is great. I love being in this position. <laughs> but, but I did tell him I needed to think about it because if you know me, I make decisions slowly. I am not a decisive person and I really think about things. And I used that week to like ask all of our friends and my parents and my family members, like, what do you think? Because like all of them knew, like, he had broken your heart before. Did you really want to do this again? My, my mom hated him. Ironically, my dad thought he's a really great guy. Like, you should go for it. Um, But actually that week, uh, what Jonathan initially was like, I'm going to like leave her some space, leave her some time, which was not really a very good decision because I was like wallowing in indecision. And I knew I liked him, but I just was kind of scared, you know. But then he decided like halfway through the week, what am I doing? I'm going to actually show her that I want to be with her and show her that she wants to be with me. And so he started like pursuing me and like coming to my room and, like, asking me out on, like, little mini dates, which was a perfect, perfect move, because it showed me that he was, <laughs> he was serious.
1: Uh, so this was all perfect timing, because this was, like, three weeks before we graduated from our senior year, and so we had a great, like, month of dating there until uh, the summertime. We kind of went to little different areas, and then she went to China for a year, which is just perfect timing for dating somebody. So the whole, our relationship, our early relationship, besides knowing each other, was really uh, written letters, instant messenger at like 6 in the morning on a Saturday, which is nighttime for China, and uh, uh, occasional phone calls with a cheap internet uh, calling thing. So that's where we kind of ended up, uh, came back, got learned good communication before we had to deal with any sort of like, I want to hang out with you like and not communicate. So we actually communicate now. And then uh, got uh, engaged uh, like two years later. Uh, what? Oh, well, there you go. So <laughs> I, I didn't waste as much time as I thought. So, And then uh, got married uh, in, in July. It'll be seven years.
0: Thank you, guys. That was uh, that was great. Um, I probably can't tell you anything about marriage that they didn't already just tell you, <laughs> in one way or another. But um, so I want to give you a little bit of a uh, background for why we're doing this series. Um, I think that it's important for for those of us in the church to talk about relationships and marriage um, because some of us have trouble with that. Some of us are struggling now. Some of us have gone through struggles in the past. Um, Probably all of us will go through some kind of relationship struggle in the future. And even for those of us who would say that right now is a very happy time if we're married, um, it's always good to take your car into the shop for a tune-up. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, If it doesn't make sense, it's probably because your car's broken down all the time. (laughs) Um, Because you haven't taken it in for a tune-up. So it's good for us to be looking at these questions of what is marriage and what isn't marriage and and how can we work at our marriages to make them better, even when times are good for us. Uh, And I think it's important to talk about relationships together, uh, even for those of us who are are not married, who are not in a relationship at all, uh, romantically speaking. Uh, because uh, most people who are single are thinking about being in a relationship or have been before and are thinking about that. And so it's, it's wise for everybody to be thinking about these questions. And my, my very sincere hope is that this series will be of, of great help and will be meaningful for all of us in the room, whether we're married and everything's going great, whether we're married and things seem to be falling apart, whether we're dating, whether we're single and anything else I might have missed. I really do hope, sincerely, that this will be useful for everybody. And I'll just say today, and I may repeat this dozens of times in the next four weeks, I am not a marriage expert by any stretch. Um, I'm an expert in one thing, and that is being extremely lucky <laughs> in marriage. Um, and Tracy's not in the room, so I'm not just saying that to um, impress her. But I'll tell her I said it afterward, though, so... <laughs> Um, but in all seriousness, uh, I I don't have any uh, advanced degrees in this. Um, but what I what I can do is talk about what I've observed in my life and the lives of others, and uh, what I see in the Bible, and that's where we're going to begin today, is with the biblical basis for marriage. And some of you probably are asking why start there. Others of you are like a okay. Where else would you start? Um, but some of you might be thinking why would you start with the Bible for for marriage? What does this book that's thousands of years old, have to say to marriage in the 21st century. Um, And in fact, even further, some people may react against the Bible as a starting point because it has been used in the past to abuse you, maybe particularly with respect to this issue. The Bible has been used as a weapon against you to keep you in an unhealthy marriage or a dangerous marriage even. It's been used to restrict or confine you to particular roles according to your gender. It may have been used to browbeat you about your sexual failings and uh, how they may or may not relate to eternity and all the things that will happen to you when you get there. Um, And so let me just say to those of you in the room who would say, yes, that's been my experience with the Bible, that I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry that somebody has used this book to hurt you, to harm you, rather than to heal you, or to condemn you, rather than to redeem you. Uh, And you need to know that at Artisan, and actually, in fact, in our entire family of churches, um, we are a people who believe that the Bible is a beautiful, divinely inspired gift gift. From God, and it's the very best way for us to understand the life that He wants for us. And we consider it authoritative in matters of faith and central to our lives. But we are not fundamentalists. Not here at Artisan, not in the Evangelical Covenant Church of which we are a part. And I always want to encourage you, even exhort you, to say please, use and read the Bible with care and with intelligence and with with a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Let me say a little bit more about what I mean to read the Bible with care. You know, even though we have this very high view of what the Bible means to us theologically, I've just said that and I, I make no apologies for, for the Bible as our central tool in the faith. We do have to understand that the expression of God's will that is found in here must be read in in context, quite simply. You have to keep an eye on what the Bible meant before you can understand what it means. Does that make sense? In fact, I had a college professor once who said this, and this might be a little shocking to you, but, but let it sink in. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. Some of you are going, that's splitting hairs. That's putting too fine a point on it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) In other words, it's not just enough to say the Bible tells me so all the time, right? Because does it really? (laughs) The Bible contains many different types of literature, genres, categories of literature. Which one is the passage that you're reading today? Sometimes the Bible shows us something. Sometimes the Bible tells us something. Which one is it today? Do those questions affect how you interpret the Bible? Yes. Yes, they do. And specifically when it comes to marriage, not everything that the Bible shows us happening in marriages is something that we would want to emulate. Is that right? You know, Solomon had lots of wives. Dozens? Hundreds? Does that mean that we also ought to all have lots of wives? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, uh, Jacob had to work for his future father-in-law for seven years so that he would be given the woman of his dreams by her father. And then he tricked Jacob and gave her the sister. Jacob, uh, I don't know if he'd had too much wedding wine, but didn't notice this until it was too late the next day. And so he had to work another seven years to get the woman that he really wanted. Is this how we ought to approach marriage? Of course it's not. On the other hand, there are times when the Bible offers clear and direct instruction about how we ought to arrange our married lives. So there's still a question of context in those parts of the Bible, but they're very clearly didactic. In other words, they're trying to teach us something, trying to tell us something, trying to change our behavior when we relate to each other. So... um, we absolutely want to begin with the Bible as the basis for what we're going to talk about in the in the coming weeks, and, and there'll be a little bit less scripture in the coming weeks because some of it will be a little bit more practical. Um, but today we want to start with the Bible, and we're going to look at this with care because I think looking at the Bible carelessly might be worse than not looking at it at all. Um, okay, so that's a that's a fairly long introduction to today's sermon, but I really did want to frame this properly for you so you know where we're coming from, why we're starting where we're starting. Um, So let's go ahead and look through at, um, we can't look at everything the Bible says about marriage, but we can look at at a few key passages and and see what we can figure out. I'd like to start uh, at the beginning. Seems like a good place to start with Genesis chapter 2. And um, we'll look at two passages today specifically, and they'll both be... um, marked with a page number for the red Bible under your chair, so if you'd like to follow along, you can. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 is a creation story. It's the second one. The first one happens in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, this is the story that tells about gender for the first time. Um, and it, it does actually uh, create some interesting foundation for New Testament theology of, of relationships as well, so, which we'll see a little bit later. But um, What I'd like to do is read Genesis 2 um, most of it will it'll be, most of 18 through 24. I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, so let's read this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Uh, and then the next few verses talk about how the Lord formed out of the ground animals that might be the partner for this man. Kind of an interesting thing. Uh, But at the end of verse 20, you see that there is not found a helper as his partner from all these different animals. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. So I there are two key issues that I want to look at in in this little passage of scripture. Probably we could come up with more than two, but there's two that we'll look at today. The first key issue comes from the very first verse. Did anybody's ears perk up when it said I will make him a helper as his partner, right? So, um, somebody to help him do the dishes. Somebody to help him raise the children. Somebody to help him not have to have Taco Bell every night. (laughs) Is this what the Bible means when it says that, essentially, what we see after this verse that Eve became the helper of Adam. Well, I I, I hate to get um, too inside baseball when it comes to the ancient languages, but let me tell you what this word means, right? The word ezer is the Hebrew word for helper. It's used 21 times in the Bible, right? Can you guess how it's used? Of Eve, it is used twice. Three times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's, it's used to describe... Um, Israel's military allies coming to be a helper to the the people of God, and 16 times in the Old Testament, the vast majority of the uses of this word helper are used of God, describing him as the helper of Israel. So, gentlemen, if you want to use Genesis 2.18 to explain to your wife that she is to be your helper, You must remember that biblically that word means that she is a helper to you in the way that God, your creator, is a helper to his people. So that's a little bit holier of a calling, isn't it, ladies? (laughs) See what I mean about you have to be a little careful (laughs) when you read these texts? And then the second key issue in Genesis chapter 2 is in the last verse that we read, verse 24. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Which is kind of an interesting thing to, to say. Um, perhaps, perhaps this is a euphemism for the uh, act of consummating a marriage. But I think it's a even more than that theological statement about what happens when two people make vows to one another that they used to be two and now they're now they're one and that's why in the in the marriage ceremony uh, which I have the great privilege of doing sometimes is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor it says what what god has joined together let no person separate uh, because in that act there's there's a, a, a union now it, it of course it does not mean that you have to toss your own identity out the window that if you're a husband that that's all you are that you no longer are an individual but you're only part of this marriage and then if you're a wife you have you, you know you can't do anything else but but be a wife and and that's who you are this is not intended to be uh, a to speak about the identity of the individuals going away. It's, it's, it's intended to talk about a new identity that forms together when two people are married. And so, you know, it, it, it lends a little bit more seriousness to the nature of this relationship than maybe we would be prone to give it in 21st century America. Right. Again, we're not going to use that to... Attack you, and and we will talk about divorce in the fourth week fourth week of this series. And uh, I'll just kind of ruin the surprise. We're going to talk about that in a in a grace filled way, uh, and look for for opportunities for restoration and grace and healing. Um, we'll get there. Um, so let me talk fairly quickly about some other. Um, some other examples of, of marriage in the Old Testament. And these examples are a little bit different from the Genesis 2 one uh, because I think these are, these are from parts of the Bible that are intended to be read as historical narratives, not as a theological creation story, okay? You see the distinction I'm making there? You see what I'm saying without really saying it? Um, this, these, the following examples would be something that I would consider historical events, right? Um, The first one is uh, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people and, in fact, of the uh, Islamic people and of the Christian people as well. Um, The first first person to be called apart by Yahweh, God. And he was given a promise late in life that he would be the father of a great nation and he had trouble trusting that promise because his wife was past childbearing age. Um, and even he, in a patriarchal society, knew that if without children yet, if he was going to be the father of a great nation, his wife would need to participate in this. Right? <laughs> Abraham was not gonna happen, not gonna happen on his own. Right? And that's an interesting thing to me that that implicitly Sarah is part of this promise. His wife. And in fact, when they try to circumvent this, when they try to opt out of that by um, using Sarah's servant, that takes them outside of the will of God. It, it, it sends them down a road that they were not supposed to go. Right. And God has grace in that road as well, and uh, we, we can read about that in the Bible too. Um, but Sarah needed to be part of that. Interesting. Um, second thing is, uh, is marriage under the Mosaic Law. After this Abrahamic people had been um, formed and shaped by God and, and uh, many, many, many years later, the law was given to Moses and, the, and this law was intended to govern all the people of Israel. And what the law did was uh, elaborate and regulate the concept of, of wives as property. Chattel would be the technical term there, right? Um, now, this is a product of the ancient Near Eastern culture, that wives were property. Does that mean that God wants wives to be property? I don't think that's what it means at all. I think it means that God is incarnational, meaning he's present and real among us wherever we are at whatever time we live, and that God will work in and around the cultural trappings that we, we have, Context matters. Culture matters. You look at this stuff. God is there working through our shortcomings. And so the Mosaic Law provides some guidelines and boundaries for how husbands ought to treat their that particular part of their property known as their wives. King Solomon, I already mentioned. Lots of wives because he had lots of money. Again, is polygamy God's great idea for marriage? I don't think so. But polygamy was the idea of marriage that existed at the time of King Solomon. And so the the rule among the Hebrew people was you can't have more wives than you can afford to support. So God's shaping and guiding what I think is a, an abhorrent process, uh, <laughs> policy, about marriage. But he's there, present. Just as he's here, present, Now, with all of our screw-ups and all the things that we have backwards about what marriage ought to be. And then uh, King David. Very famous story of King David's adultery. um, And you can read that in the Bible. And the the only point I'll make about that right now is that his original sin of adultery um, resulted in him... Going cascading down, with cover up after cover up, and eventually it turns into murder and and plotting and lying and and deceit, and it's just uh, there's a, there's a fairly obvious moral lesson there. I think about what happens when you when you take one step in the wrong direction. Your choices are either take a step back toward what's right or take another step down in the wrong direction. You're, you, you're we're always in motion. <laughs> one way or the other. Right. Um, okay, so that's, that's a very quick primer in Old Testament marriage. Um, and I'm running out of time here. I'm going to try to go a little quicker here because we still have to get to one, one more passage. Um, marriage according to Jesus. We are Christians. We believe that Jesus' teaching is the, is the highest calling that we have in our lives, and so we need to, to think about that as well. Um, and we're going to look at that in the in coming weeks a little bit more. Um, but today I'll just make a couple of interesting observations, interesting to me anyway. That the first wedding Jesus performed took place—excuse me—the first miracle that Jesus performed took place at a wedding, and uh, the the Book of Common Prayer's wedding liturgy says that the Lord adorned this manner of life by His presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, I just think that's really beautiful. Um, we talked about David's adultery. Well, Jesus was dealt with the issue of adultery as well when when some Pharisees and teachers of the law dragged an adulterous woman literally from the bed in which she was committing her sin before Jesus, and he chose not to condemn her. And he uses it instead as an example, as a chance to make an example of, the, of those Pharisees. He also tells her, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, go back to what you were doing, but he does not condemn her. He asks her, where are your condemners? And she says, there are none. And and he he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Um, And so we'll we'll talk um, more about this concept of grace uh, when it comes to sin within the the, um, marriage relationship in coming weeks. Um, Jesus did teach a few different times about divorce, and so we're going to leave that for week four. So, I want to conclude with a, a look at what uh, the Apostle Paul has to say about marriage. Um, and the reason I want to do that is because, as I said at the outset, sometimes the Bible shows and sometimes it tells. In the writings of Paul, we have some pretty clear telling going on. He's telling us what the nature of this relationship ought to be, and so I want to, I want to deal with that. Um, Ephesians 5 is where we're going, and there's a couple of other passages in the New Testament that have similar content. And it's some of the most explicit teaching about what Christian marriage should look like, and yet I think it's also some of the most widely abused parts of the Bible. So I want to take a look at it and, and talk about it. Um, so we're going to look at Ephesians 5, uh, starting in, well, I won't tell you what verse we're going to start in just yet. It's on the screen. Um, that's great. <laughs> I got, I got to talk to the guy who makes those slides. You ruined the surprise. Um, it's me. So, just a, I want to show you something very quickly. What, what the um, what the original? Not the original. We don't have the original copies of these Greek texts, right? We have handwritten copies of copies of copies. Now, we could talk at length about how exact and precise these are as compared to other ancient literature. The short answer is very. Um, but still, we don't have originals and. Um, we don't have them broken out by sentence or paragraph or section. We've talked about this before, right? Now you can you can figure out from the grammatical structure of the language of Koine Greek where the sentences are likely to start and begin. But you still are left with to your own devices to figure out where the paragraphs should start and begin. You have to look at the completeness of a thought, and you know, just like you do. So, um, Avila, would you show that next slide? This is an example of what you might see. This is the passage we're about to read, um, written out the way it would come to somebody uh, looking at an old manuscript of the Old Test of the New Testament. Right now, they didn't have the crappy font, Dakota handwriting in the uh, <laughs> in the ancient Greek world, um, but it was all written out in capital letters without spaces, just a big block of text. Okay. So, as I've said to you before, the section headings in your Bible are an editorial decision. We believe one thing about the inspiration of the Word of God. We believe another thing about the inspiration of Bible translators and editors. Okay? (laughs) Some of your Bibles, I don't know how many of you bring Bibles with you anymore because we always have the ones under the chair, and that's okay. But some of your Bibles probably start this section of Scripture with verse 22. What does verse 22 start out by saying? Wives, be subject to your husbands. I would propose to you that that's a silly place to start if you have read the verse that comes before, which uses the same language for both husbands and wives. And I would go so far as to say that We talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about topic sentences and how do you figure out, you know, where an idea starts and begins. I think verse 21 ought to be our topic sentence for this section about the Christian household. And as you can see, the editors of our uh, Bibles here happen to agree with me. They're smarter than me. Um, And so that's what we're going to go with. So let's read this passage, um, chapter 5, verses 21-21 through 33. Be subject to one another, sometimes some translations say submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she, the church, may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. We are parts of his body, the body of Christ. And here he quotes Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. So, in addition to the uh, topic sentence idea, which is that really what Paul is doing is saying that we, husbands and wives, should submit to each other, I want to ask you a couple of questions about male headship. Male headship is sort of like predestination. You can't say it's not in the Bible. The words are there on the page, but you can maybe quibble a little bit about what it means. (laughs) But Let me ask you two questions about male headship. The first question is a is a cultural question. Why would Paul have to say this to the church in Ephesus in the years 60 or 70 AD? It's a social convention. It's there like the multiple wives, you're saying. And so why would he have to say it? Shouldn't it be assumed in that culture that a wife should submit to her husband? Okay. Paganism, we, we, yes, but we don't have time. <laughs> um, I think he's doing the same thing that he was doing with the polygamy and with any other kind of cultural thing that maybe is not the most healthy thing for us. He's saying, here is how to do that in a way that is now explicitly Christian. Wives need to submit to their husbands. That's the way the culture works. But let me frame that for you a little bit, is what Paul is saying. So The first question is, why would he say that? It's sort of a rhetorical question. Why would he have to say that? <laughs> the historical answer, by the way, is because the Christian church was starting to turn those conventions on their head, and it was, it was going too fast and causing strife. Okay, But we won't get into that either. Second question. How does he characterize the role of the head? That is the husband. In what way is the husband to be the head of his wife? In the same way that Christ was the head of the church, which was to suffer and die for her. To care and love so much as to give up Every thing. So, to my slightly more conservative brothers, who maybe wish this passage started with verse 22, and who, who maybe want to emphasize headship a little more than I personally want to do, I say, okay, I'm okay agreeing to disagree about certain biblical interpretations. But what you cannot attribute to, con- to correct interpretation of Ephesians 5 is a relationship with your wife that's anything other than wholly self sacrificial to the point of death. So go ahead and be ahead. <laughs> but that doesn't mean be the boss. Mutual submission, by the way, is consistent with the other teachings of the New Testament, with the writings of Paul and with the teachings of Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's among you there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, but Christ in all is all and in all. Jesus said in Matthew 20 that whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. The first shall be last. These are, those are big-time principles. All the details have to flow out of those principles, right? We've talked about that before, too. And so the way that I'd like to leave you is, is with a call to mutual submission. And this is for everybody in the room, whether you're a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a single person who's a friend to somebody else. or a social worker, (laughs) or whatever your walk of life might be, the entire message of gospel morality and gospel ethics begins with dying to yourself, with submitting to others, with putting the needs of other people ahead of your own. That's what Christian love looks like Whether it's marriage, friendship, service, or anything else, and so it might be kind of fun or even funny to talk about some of this that we've talked about. We've done it, I hope, in a in a charitable and lighthearted way. But what is completely serious and can't be argued is that the way of Jesus is the way of submission even to the point of death. And so that is why I want to start with the Bible, because that concept is the foundation for all that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. So let me ask you to pray with me. God, thank you, uh, as always, for these words from the Bible, from your Word. And we pray that... uh, in all our efforts to apply these words and to understand them and to teach them to others and to receive them from others, that that we would be first humble and um, willing to speak to one another openly. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one that teaches us, be the one from whom we receive uh, your word. And in all our relationships, whether they are relationships with a spouse, whether they're romantic or platonic, whether they're with friends or strangers, may we have the courage to do the things that we need to do so that those relationships would be in harmony with your will, which is that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Um, I really apologize. We're going a little bit long, and uh, I still need to talk to you about one or two things before we bring the children back in. Um, I I need to ask you to be in prayer uh, as a community for a couple of families who are um, really experiencing some hurt right now. Um, Many of you know Christina Shands and uh, her sister uh, about a week ago. Uh, who was in early stages of pregnancy. Her water broke, and she went into labor and delivered a baby, but they were not able to save him. Uh, And so Christina's sister and her whole family are feeling a pain right now that is unimaginable. And so let me ask you to be in prayer for them. And then the other thing is that um, two nights ago, Uh, One of our friends here at Artisan, somebody who used to attend here, hasn't been probably in about a year or so, uh, but Paul Schiffer, we knew him as Schiff, uh, was in a skiing accident and died, Uh, and so his family is in uh, profound turmoil, and he was a, a primary caregiver for his wife and one of his daughters, both of whom have chronic fatigue syndrome and need some pretty serious attention. And so they're, they're, uh, they're really in pain right now. And uh, so both of those families are just at the very beginning of what's likely to be a long process of, of healing, and uh, I wanted to ask you to be praying for them. I'm going to do my best to pray for them right now, um, but please do be remembering them in prayer um, beyond just today's service. Uh, God, we come to you on behalf of uh, families who have connections to our community, who are in such deep pain, and uh, we want to pray for Christina's sister and her husband and, and their older child as they deal with this impossible thing. We have no words to express our grief and even perhaps our anger Uh, when things like this happen. But we do, with all the strength that we have, cling to the promise that you are present even in these darkest days. And so we ask for your peace, for Christina's family, and for healing, and for them to be able, as the days and weeks go on, to see your presence among them, even in the midst of their pain. And uh, for the Schiffer family, we uh, lift them to you, having lost their dad and their husband, and ask the same for them, that in the midst of a pain that most of us can't quite even imagine, your Holy Spirit would be among them would be real to them, would be healing them and leading them uh, on to a, a continued life of faith in your power and in your love. Amen. Well, even in the wake of uh, that kind of pain, I want to invite you to come, especially in the wake of that kind of pain, I want to invite you to come uh, and participate in the Lord's Supper, receiving uh, body and blood of Christ in the form of our bread and and in the cup uh, as food for your souls, and sometimes our souls need a lot of food. And as an act of remembrance in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, come you can tear a piece of bread and dip it in, in either wine or juice, whatever's appropriate for you and, and for your family, and receive the grace that he offers to you. And uh, if you're a parent wondering if you can bring your children, that's entirely up to you. Uh, if you'd like to have them participate, you can do so. Um, but please do go and pick them up if they're down in the hallway with Ben, because I ran over and I'll apologize to him. Um, but he, uh, he and Tracy actually are probably ready to see you if you're a parent. (laughs) Um, So let's continue to worship him and uh, come to the table as he calls you.